Revelation 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So why are we doing the book of Revelation? I've asked that question uh, to several people if they, what their thoughts are on Revelation. And several folks have asked me, why are we doing Revelation? It just seems so out there. Or folks have asked, are we doing it because we see certain things in the culture? Is it something about the timing? This is an election year. Uh, it's the Olympic year. It's, probably, it's leap year. I don't know. Like, are we doing it because of something that we see in the culture? Is the timing specific to something? And my answer is no. We don't see anything in the culture or our, our context. There's nothing in the news where we're like, man, now is the time for us to do the book of Revelation. We're going to capitalize on this. Or we see some, so let's do this in response to the culture. Or let's do this in, some, in response to some sort of worldwide event that we see. That's not why we're doing it. We're, we're going through the book of Revelation because this is the word of God. This is the word of God. And we cannot finish the story that God's word tells, the true story of how things are. We cannot finish the story here in the scriptures without the book of Revelation, the very last book. If you're unfamiliar with Revelation, um, hang in there with us for the next few weeks and we'll talk more about it. Uh, it's the very last book in the Bible. And the name of the book is Revelation, not Revelations. Everybody good with that? So some I've already been challenged to not say revelations at all uh, for the next 17 weeks. So I'm going to try real hard to, to do that. It's one revelation to John. It's not multiple revelations uh, to different people. So this is the book of Revelation. Here's what the book of Revelation paints for us with broad strokes is that we are in the midst of a cosmic battle. We have been in the midst of this cosmic battle for centuries before. And John writes this to believers to say, you're in the middle of this cosmic battle and you are not prepared. You are not ready for battle. Your mindset is not there. Now for us sitting here this morning, uh, February 4th, 2024, we are ready for battle. We want to battle about homeschool versus public school. We want to battle about Republicans or Democrats. 
or a third party or a fourth or fifth or sixth. We want to battle uh, about worship songs. We want to battle. Uh, we want to battle about the types of food that we should eat or where we should get our food from. We want to battle about all of these different things. We're ready to battle about college football. We're ready to battle about who the Falcons should take in the draft. We're ready to battle about all of these things. But when we look at Scripture, there's something that's grander than any one of these arguments. There's a true battle that has been lasting since the beginning of time, and it will continue. We're going to see what that battle looks like here. But I would challenge us with this this morning. This is a spiritual battle. And what we're going to see from the book of John, or from the book of Revelation, from John's writings He challenges the people of God to be battle-ready in this way. Right now in American culture, everything is hyper-individualized. It's all about you. It's all about me. It's whatever you think. It's whatever you say. It's however you feel. Everything is incredibly myopic. In other words, I can draw a circle around me. Here's what I think. And as long as I'm happy, I don't care what else is happening around me. We love that. So can I go ahead and challenge us this morning from the book of Revelation? What if we pursued radical hospitality as a threat to the enemy that we see here as part of this cosmic battle? What if instead of just looking, drawing a circle around me and Jesus, what if we knew what it meant to be part of community? What if I knew my neighbor's names? What if I believed that God could save my coworker who talks like that or looks like that or dresses like that? What would it mean for me to live a life in community, understanding that this is not just about me, that I am the middle of a much larger story? That's what the book of Revelation is about. So as we turn there this morning, may we be reminded, the book of Revelation shows us how things really are. So we must pick our heads up for a moment from everything that concerns me, from navel-gazing, from what makes me happy, from doing the things that I want to do, from spending my money the way that I want to spend my money, from using my time and my resources and my talents and my family and my goals for the way that I want to use them. We're in the middle of a cosmic battle, and the more individualized and the more self-focused we become, the more we begin to look like our greatest enemy. So this morning, I want us to see, um, here's a quote from Eugene Peterson first, and then we'll jump in. Eugene Peterson says this in talking about the way that we have become individualized. He says, why am I so uncomfortable in this world? They are all on my side, talking about the world. They are all courteous and affirmative, but it seems to be gospel without depth, without suffering, without ambiguity. Everything smoothed out and ironed and with a lot of starch in the collar. In other words, what he's saying is, we want our lives to look really nice and to feel really easy. And the world is agreeing with us. We should be uncomfortable in this world. We should be as followers of Christ. The book of Revelation is going to show us how things really are. I want us to take away seven things this morning from the book of Revelation from these first eight verses. I thought seven was um, appropriate. So the first one is this before we even jump into the passage. The first one is this. God has been and is now at work in a realm that we can't see into with human eyes. God has been and is now at work in a realm that we can't see 
with human eyes. There is something much bigger at play. There is something much bigger at stake. We have really tall privacy fences around our homes, and we have really small dining room tables for most of us because it's all about me, us four and no more. Here we see the book of Revelation. We've got to look up from that and say there's something much bigger at risk and much, something much bigger at play. Before we jump in, let's, I want you to repeat these words after me. Psalm 119. I haven't used this in a while, but I want us to jump back into this, especially during this, uh, during this book. Repeat these words after me if you would, and let's make this our prayer to God. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. That's our prayer. May we be blessed. So John begins in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that soon, that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, we, we got to begin here. The very first word, y'all ready? All right, the very first word right there is the. Okay, we'll forget about that one. In the Greek, the very first word is actually revelation. And when we think about revelation, we think, oh, happy word. My mind automatically goes to a gender reveal party. Something is going to be awesome with blue or pink confetti and balloons and powder and um, videos and caring way too much. Okay, So that's when we think revelation. We're like, man, this is happy. The actual word there that's used in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. Everybody say apocalypsis. And that's where we get our word what? Apocalypse, yeah. That's a much scarier sounding word. Apocalypse. Ooh. It's almost like every time we say the word apocalypse, we should like be able to come over here and hit a sound effect. Dun, 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 you know. Revelation seems happy, but here the word is actually apocalypse. Here's what the word apocalypse means. Uh, some simple definitions of it. First, to unveil to uncover, or to open up. In other words, things are not as they seem. And so an apocalypse is allowing us to see earthly events and contexts from a heavenly perspective. Another way, I like this definition as well, a breaking through of something you otherwise could not see. A breaking through of something that you otherwise could not see. Here's a third definition. It sets the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. It sets the present. How are we to live today in the midst of this cosmic battle? And then lastly, notice the bifurcation of these two, but notice the similarities as well. It sets the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. So it's not only focused on the future. Apocalypse means it is focused on, hey, here's what's going to happen, but here is a reality that's happening right now. Here are some apocalyptic characteristics. So when we run into apocalyptic literature in the Bible, we're, we're going to see these seven things primarily. The first one is that we're often going to see, uh, sorry, you can go to the next one, uh, Nicole. Here's what we're going to see when we, when we talk about apocalypse. You can go to the next one. We're going to see heavenly visions, always common with apocalyptic literature. Secondly, angels and demons. Again, this cosmic battle is raging. We're going to see bizarre-looking creatures. That's why I say if you want to draw pictures as we're going through Revelation, uh, it's really easy. 
all kinds of crazy stuff. The fourth thing is symbolic imagery and numbers. If you're reading this, we were, my kids, for some reason, um, thanks to my in-laws, were watching NASCAR last night, and, uh, and one of the cars uh, had, you know, monster energy drink, you know, on the side of it. And you see these, these booths that are set up at different, you know, conferences, and people are trying to convince you that the, that the monster, the M, you know, logo is actually 666, and the Hebrew, and it's actually a mark of the beast, so don't drink monster energy drinks. We're not going to be doing that, okay? Uh, those people don't understand uh, the Hebrew language, for starters. Secondly, uh, you're not, that's not the mark of the beast, because the Bible doesn't say that. And thirdly, it's just kind of crazy, all right? So as we see symbols, images, numbers, just know they point to something else. We're not looking, trying to figure out what these numbers exactly represent. Uh, the fifth thing there is there is abundant use of metaphor. So a simile is like or as. This looks like this. And John says that often. This looks like this. We forget that like and as. We're like, oh, he saw this exactly. Oh, so the locusts must be Apache helicopters. No. Oh, the COVID vaccine must be the mark of the beast. We're going to just read the Bible, all right? A metaphor is, it is so life is a highway. That's a metaphor, it's not life is like a highway. Life is a highway. Now, is life literally a highway? Yeah, no, it's not. It's not literally a highway, but he's saying here's an image to represent what life is. Uh, one of my favorite uh, modern day poets, she says, uh, baby, you're a firework. You know, Katy Perry. Uh, so she's not saying you're like a firework. You're as, a, she's saying you're a firework. Is that, the, are you actually literally a firework? No, she's representing something. That's a metaphor. This is that. He has a heart of stone. She has a heart of gold. The, the sixth thing there is there are cataclysmic events. Things that are just rocking the world. Those have to be connected with the symbolic imagery, by the way. The last thing there, seventhly, there are scenes of judgment and destruction. Scenes of judgment and destruction. Let's go back to that Richard Balkum quote, Nicole. Sorry, I skipped over that one. Richard Balkum, he says this, It is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven or an eschatological future. Es eschatology just means the study of the end times. But that the here and now, today, February 4th, look quite different when they are opened to transcendence. There is another reality that the scriptures are going to open up and re reveal to us. So now the second thing that I want us to see this morning. Secondly, now that we understand apocalyptic literature a little bit, some of what we're investing our lives in, we're counting on and hoping for now, is not as significant or certain as we thought it was. We cannot have a myopic, microscopic view of our existence. In apocalyptic literature, it seeks to answer the questions of who will I worship? To whom will I give my ultimate allegiance? Who will I follow? What will I be? By what value system will I walk? What is going to shape my life? Is it the kingdom of Christ or is it the kingdom of humanity in rebellion against God? That's the purpose of apocalyptic literature. And can I just tell you this? Apocalyptic literature is written in that way. Now we can it'll help us understand revelation. We, we cannot come to revelation and say, here's what I want it to say. 
We have to understand the genre, the type of writing that it is to give us a grasp of the reason it was written and what it says. If you notice there also in verse number one, it says that God gave. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. If if, if Travis Kelsey, after next week's um, Super Bowl, if Travis Kelsey decided to give me a, a pair of his cleats from that game and his girlfriend, man, what a great love story. Am I right? If you're not an, if you're not an amen person, that, that's where you say amen anyway, all right? And if Taylor Swift gave me just an awesome jacket, you know, one of those uh, amazing Nike custom jackets that she has. If I said, man, guess what? Travis Kelsey gave me his cleats from the Super Bowl and Taylor Swift sent me this jacket that she was wearing, you'd say, that's pretty special. And I wouldn't just wear those cleats around and I wouldn't just wear that jacket around. I would get those things framed and be like, man, look at what they gave me. And here, notice, this is from God. God gives this to Jesus Christ. He says, let me tell you about what is happening. Jesus Christ, it's all right here in verse number one, then gives that to his servant, John, through an angel. So here's the way it transpires. God says, I want to I give this to you, my people. God gives it to Jesus and says, let me show you this. Jesus says, okay, I need an angel to give this to John because if I give this straight to John, it's just gonna blow his mind. So we have God the Father giving it to Jesus the Son who gives it to an angel who gives it to John who writes it down for us. But this is from God. We need to keep that in mind. These are not just ramblings of a crazy man on an island. Verse number two. To a servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Notice, we talked about this a minute ago, but this, he, he's seeing this in front of him. Revelation is an alternate reading of reality. He's saying, you see this, but let me tell you actually about what's happening in the midst of this cosmic battle. And can I just say this? As we look at these images and at these pictures at these really scary things, you're like, man, I don't, I don't understand some of this stuff. That's okay, neither did John. At times we're gonna see John say, yo, angel, can we take a break? I don't know what that means. Can you stop? Can you explain that to me? So the images are not here to, to clarify something, to make it crystal clear for us. He's saying, this is what it looks like. Man, this is going to blow your mind uh, Daryl Johnson says this. Uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a great book. Uh, it's called some, uh, Discipleship on the Edge. Um, a really great book, just walking through Revelation. I recommend it. It's probably 350 pages, but a real easy read. He says that imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. That's why they say, by the way, a picture paints a thousand words. We got a lot of pictures. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting the emotions. Now, for some of us, we don't like the idea of imagination. But can I tell you, anything that you can think of or I don't want to use the word imagine, that you can consider any past memory that you have is part of your imagination. 
Because you can't see it, you saw it. And as you think back to that, you are using your imagination. When you sleep at night, you're, you're reaching down into your imagination, using memories and things you know, and it can feel really real, right? If I said, hey, for lunch, we're going to go fill in the blank, go here. I don't want to put those thoughts into your mind because I start getting hungry when I do that. Uh, but if we're going to go here, you, can, you don't just say, okay, and here's what I'm going to order. I'm going to order a cheeseburger with cheese, with bacon, with grilled jalapenos. We're at five guys, all right? Um, and I'm going to get lettuce and tomato, and here's how it's going to be. Okay, the end, black and white. No, what excites me about five guys is that I can imagine what that greasy, greasy, low-fat, uh, you know, low-calorie cheeseburger is going to taste like. That's my imagination looking at that. Our imagination, friend, is a gift from God. It's a gift from God, and it's a means of grace. Christopher Rowland, another theologian, he says this about imagination imagery. Revelation is a classic example of art that stimulates rather than prescribes. It's here to stimulate your imagination. That's why he says here in the, in, the, in the verse number two that he saw this. Now, as we interpret these images, we must interpret the images in such a way that we understand and glean the message of the images without reducing or eliminating the need for the images. Let me say that again. As we read and interpret the images that are here, we must interpret the images in such a way that we get the meaning and the message of the images without reducing or eliminating the need for the images. Because if we can explain away revelation and we can take every single image and say, here's exactly what it means. Thanks for the image, John. We're done with that. If we can explain every single thing, we've missed the point of revelation. And we have done a great disservice to our interpretation of it. Because he didn't give us a book full of information. He gave us a book full of images. Eugene Peterson says this, I read Revelation not to get new information, but to revive my imagination. This should spur us on, stir us on to action, spur us on to action, stir our hearts. I can imagine what it's like to go on a date with my wife on February 16th. I can imagine that. Therefore, I'm going to make sure my kids are here on time. I'm going to make sure I have a reservation. My imagination of spending time with my wife, it compels me to action. And by the way, it's not devoid of information. It's full of information. But the purpose is for imagination. So we see there in verse number two that he saw this. Verse number three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Now, a common way to misinterpret the book of Revelation is to think that prophecy is always going to be about the future, that it means prediction. And we as Westerners, we have to understand that this was written from an Eastern perspective. And for us, we're like, yeah, 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 but wouldn't it be so nice if we could read it as Westerners? You can, but you're going to do a grave disservice. There's a, there's a in, in Eastern culture, you can hold these two concepts, these two ideas in tension and be okay with that. As Westerners, 
as a result of the enlightenment a few hundred years ago, we want everything to be explained away. We want, we want an answer. We want everything in black and white terms. And if I'm right, you're wrong. And if you're right, that means I'm wrong and I can't do that. Rather than holding two ideas in tension with each other and just saying, yeah, both of those things could be true. The other thing that affects us as Westerners, and this is not necessarily bad, but we just have to acknowledge it, that as Westerners, we think linearly. We think in terms of a calendar. We think in terms of chronology. And in Eastern terms, they think in terms of these ideas and things that happen occasionally or almost randomly. So as we read through the book of Revelation, we cannot answer the question of what happens next. Okay, so here's the third thing. The question for Revelation is not what happens next. That's, what, that's how we want to read it. That is not apocalyptic literature, and that's not the way that John wrote this. He had no idea what that first question means. He didn't. We have to answer the question, what does John see next? What does John see next? Prophets are not fortune tellers. In fact, if you go back and we've got major prophets, we've got minor prophets. Go back and spend a couple of hours reading through those and let me know how many things there are about the future. A prophet is someone who says, thus says the Lord to you today and brings the word of God into the here and now. He says, here's how you are to respond. Here's how, here, here's how you are to live today. Now, if you don't hear the implications, here's what may happen in the future. God is this, and that is true. But he's, they're saying it. Every single prophet says, know this for today, for it to affect your life today. Not about here's what's going to happen later. The fourth thing is this. Revelation is actually less about when Jesus will return and more about what we are to do, who we are to be and what we can expect to endure as we wait for Jesus to return to establish his kingdom. It is less about, man, I gotta, I gotta find the date. I gotta put this on a calendar. I gotta look at all these sequence of events. I gotta look and see what Israel's up to. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, and it has been practical for every single believer for the last 2,000 years. We are not stumbling upon a book that just now becomes important. We're not coming upon a book where we can say, oh, finally, now we can read Revelation. No church before us has needed it until today. No, he is saying, here's how you are to live today and for every believer for the last 2,000 years. Notice in verse number three also, he says, blessed are those who hear it and those who keep it. Now this keep is not, hey, put it in a, in a, in a, in a safe and keep it over here. Keep it safe. Keep it out of the way. Keep it. Don't tell anybody about it. Shh. We're going to keep it, but we're not going to tell anybody. No, the idea of keep there, the word literally means to keep at it, to keep it in use, to keep it active in everyday life. So he says, keep it, apply it to your life. The word of God is meant to transform every part of our being, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we believe, the way that we feel. He says, keep at it. And then lastly, right there in verse three, he says, for the time is near. Literally, that you could, and maybe your translation actually had this, it literally means the time is at hand, which means it's not far off in the future, but it's right before us in the immediate. By the way, the time is near. It, it's, um, 
It's like saying this table is near me. We think we see the word time for the time is near and automatically we associate near with the time. All right, so near means um, I am nearly through with my sermon. Whew, praise God. But in reality, he's saying the time, he's, he's taking it as an object and saying this object, when things are going to happen, they are close by. They're so close that you can touch them. By the way, we'll get in trouble if we say, oh, let, let's talk about how near it is. Let's talk about how immediate it is. He's saying it's so immediate, it's happening right now. So he says the time is near. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, it says this, and this is the very first thing, these are the very first words of Jesus that Mark records for us. Jesus uses the same exact phrase in the Greek. He says, now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the same phrase, by the way. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. The kingdom of God, in other words, is here. He's saying, I have brought the kingdom of God with me. The kingdom of God is the presence of the Trinity. I, Jesus Christ, am part of the Trinity. I'm bringing the Father and the Spirit with me. The kingdom of God is here right now. So unless we interpret this differently than Jesus would have, we can say he's talking about things that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Not later when you see it, because at that point it's going to be too late. He says, the kingdom of God is here right now. Imagine if you came to, uh, to my house, uh, and I love to smoke things. I'm a big green egg. And, you, and my goal is always that I want the smoke to not just fill my home or to fill um, like my back porch where it is. I want it to fill uh, the noses of my neighbors about two and three houses down so that they get jealous. And they come to my house and say, what is this meal that you are cooking? I'm so hungry. And I say, if you think you're hungry now, just imagine your soul and Jesus is the bread of life. And they repent and believe that hasn't happened yet. But let's say you come to my house and you, you get out of your vehicle and you, be, you smell the wafting of, of this meat that's being smoked. And you're just like, man, that is blowing my mind. I mean, I know Shane's is you know, great and Jim and Nick's is you know, just amazing, but I've never smelled anything like this. And I'm like, I know, it's, I can't wait. They're like, what are, you, what are you smoking? Just wait. Just wait. You'll find out. Then they walk in the house, and Shannon's making some killer bacon-wrapped green beans. You can smell that bacon on there just sizzling and crisping up. And she's, uh, you know, she's got a, a peach cobbler in the oven. You know, you smell that. You walk. Man, I can't wait. For, I smell these things. They're so great. It's, it, it smells like you put this type of cinnamon on there, and it smells like, oh, you put some garlic on the green beans, and it, it smells like you've got some, some apple cider in, in, that, in that meat that's smoking outside. And it, you can tell that it's there, but you can't see it. And then all of a sudden, when it's time to eat, we pull the lid off the smoker, we reveal that beautiful brisket, and that peach cobbler comes out of the oven, and those bacon-wrapped green beans apocalypse. You see it, and it makes sense. And now everything comes together, and what you thought was true or what you sensed was there is put right in front of you, and you can enjoy it. There it is. Oh, man, how great it is to smell these smells. How much better it is to feast on that meat and the bacon from the bacon-wrapped green beans and the peach cobbler, man, it's just amazing. He's saying, he's saying, here, you've heard about some of these things. Some of these things are true. We've heard some of these inklings, some of these prophecies that have looked at the future. And some of what Christ said, he says, it's here now. 
is present with you. Apocalypse, gather around, enjoy, feast your eyes on the word of God. This is a gift from him. Verse number four, if you look at verses four and five, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and we'll talk more about that next week, who John is, what he's doing, why he's writing to these churches. Why we got this, if he's only writing to the churches of of Asia, obviously we're not in Asia, why do we get this today? He says, grace to you and peace. So we know that John is, uh, he's, he's a prophet, He's writing a letter to us. We know that he's some type of, he's, he's writing in this uh, poetic art form of, of apocalyptic literature. He says, grace to you and peace to him who was and is and is to come. Now, who is he talking about there in that phrase? Him who is and who was and who is to come. Any guesses? Jesus. Let's hang on to that thought for a second. Then we see, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. All right, now we're starting to get weird. Everybody Ready? I told you I was almost done, but uh, not before, quick one-two punch, who are before his throne and, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. There we have Jesus before the throne, right? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. So we have Christ who's mentioned as the one who is and who was and who is to come, and that's true, but here specifically, it's actually talking about God the Father, Here's the beautiful thing as we see in these, in these two verses, in verses four and five, that the Trinity, they are one and they are unified. So Jesus can say, I am who is and who was and who is to come. And God the Father can say, I am who is and who was and was to come. And the Spirit can say, I am who is and who was and who is to come. It's beautiful. And so here, we're reminded that no matter what happens in life, we have the presence of the Father, we have the presence of the Son through the, through the presence of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So whatever happens in life, we have the presence of God with us. Whatever befalls us, we are not alone no matter any attack, no matter any trial, no matter any darkness. He says, so we have God the Father who's saying this, grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the seven spirits. I said, when we see numbers in the book of Revelation, we're not to think seven literal spirits, but we're to think symbolically. And seven is a number that represents, anybody know? Completion or perfection. So every commentator, almost everyone, everyone that I read, uh, read quite a few, I'm sure there's somebody out there, would say this is talking about the Holy Spirit who is perfect. He is complete. Same way that God, the Father who is, who was, who is to come, perfect, complete, forever. The Spirit, seven spirits, he's perfect, who is, who was, who is to come. And this comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 6. It says this, he said to me, what do you see? And Zechariah goes into heaven, he's being shown here uh, an, an image, a vision by this angel. And the angel said to Zechariah, what do you see? And Zechariah said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold. He's looking into heaven with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And then in verse number six, he says this. I'm not trying to like scooch by some verses, but there's more information there. Go read Zechariah 4. Read the whole book. It's great. Then he said to me, this is the angel speaking to Zechariah. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And there in Zechariah 4, he's saying, you you Israelites, you're waiting for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And you're wondering, when is this promise going to be fulfilled? And this angel of the Lord takes Zechariah into heaven and says, look, 
Be reminded the promise will be sure based on the identity of who God is. He sees these seven lampstands and the angel says, that is the Holy Spirit. These seven lampstands represent the perfect Holy Spirit of God. Quick aside, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 404. There are 518 references or allusions to the Old Testament. John hardly ever talks about the New Testament. In fact, I'm really struggling to see in the book of Revelation where he actually references the New Testament. He is always looking at the Old Testament. So if we think, man, I, wanna, I just want to I just want to go with the most simple reading of Revelation, and that's where I'm going to get my eschatology from. That's what we might, absolutely, I'm all for that. Go with the most simple reading, but also make sure you have the most simple reading of the Old Testament. Revelation was not written in a vacuum. For every single one verse, there are, there's at least one reference to the Old Testament. So he's, he's using the imagery of the Old Testament, what he was familiar with, to communicate to us about what he's seeing in this vision. He gets this from Zechariah chapter 4. He's saying, this is the Holy Spirit. Then we see, he says, this is Jesus Christ, also right there around the throne. He says, first of all, he is a, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In other words, he is going to tell us the truth about ourselves. So at the root of witness is this idea of someone who tells the truth no matter what. Same idea for someone who is a martyr, who gives their lives for what they believe to be true at the core of who they are. They're giving themselves to it. Here he's saying Jesus, this faithful witness, he tells us the truth about ourselves, the world we're living in, and the future. And by the way, where did that get Jesus? As the faithful witness, he gets him to the cross. And here he says, this is from the guy who got to the cross. We see in 1 Peter Peter says, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to witness to him, here's what you can expect. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And we're going to talk a lot more about the, the, the fiery trials that John is experiencing right here in the first century. As though something strange were happening to you. Remember what Eugene Peterson said at the beginning? He said, we're going to feel really comfortable in this world if we're living according to their standards. Here, Peter says, if this world just doesn't feel like home to you, if it feels like you don't really fit in, if it feels like you're living as part of another kingdom with another kingdom, what the world has to offer, he says, don't think that something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in the same way that it was revealed here. It says he was a faithful witness. It says he's the firstborn. He was the first human to rise from the dead and never die again. But he is not going to be the last. It says he's the firstborn. This is a promise for us. Then it says he is a ruler over kings of the earth. Well, to us, it seems like political organizations or political groups or governments or philosophies or dominant cultural uh, milieus have the power over what we think and how we live, there is someone who has the final word, and his name is Jesus Christ. And here John says, this is from God the Father, who is and who was and who will always be, from the Spirit who is perfect, who is complete, who is full, and from Jesus Christ, the firstborn, the ultimate witness, the ruler over all creation. 
You see, we want to try to figure out God. And we want to, even in these couple of verses, we want to say, okay, how can I, how can I understand the concept of more of who the Trinity is? And let me see if I can explain the Trinity in this way. Well, the Trinity is kind of like water. You see, water can be a liquid, a gas, or in frozen form, it can be ice. And so the Trinity is kind of that way. The, by the way, that's called modalism. We try to fit God into a mode that we can explain. Now, is there anything necessarily wrong with trying to think of it in that way? Maybe not, but just understand that water can't be all three of those simultaneously the way that the Trinity is, the way that we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all right here together. Okay, so what about an egg? So you've got the egg shell, the egg yolk, and the egg white. That's all right there together. Yeah, but they're not, they're not actually together because there's, there's some separation there. And here we see the Trinity is one. If we were to follow an ant around, I love documentaries. I told you that. I love documentaries. If you were to say, hey, let's, let's do a documentary on ants. We're going we're gonna to get down and we're going to get some, you know, some really sweet cameras. And we're going to follow this ant around. And we're going to see where the ant gets food. We're going to see where the ant sleeps. We're going to see where the ant, him and his lady friends hang out and where they go to dinner. We're going to see like everything about an ant, where he goes, like how he builds this stuff and digs these tunnels. and how far. You'd be like, all right, we can figure out what an ant is. And often when we come to the scripture, when it's talking about who God is, we're like, okay, let's see if we can figure this out. And let's see if we can follow God around. And see if we see if we can make a documentary about them. But in reality, friend, we cannot figure out who God is. The reason this is written in this way is because it's more of like we are the ant trying to figure out who a human is. That's the perspective. John's saying, "Hey, man, I'm just giving you a little bit of what I'm seeing, just a little bit, so you know who this is from. But you can't understand this. You have the mental capacity of an ant compared to a human. That's us compared to God. We cannot figure out who God is. That's not the point of Revelation. Lastly, notice here he finishes verse number five. He talks about who Jesus Christ is to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. When we talk about the love of Jesus, it is not sentimental. The love of Jesus is sacrificial. It is a sacrificial love. He loves you. He died to take the wrath of God the Father off of you and put it on himself. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you so that you could be freed, so that you could experience his love. And I would plead with you this morning, if you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ in confessing your sin and repenting from the world, from the kingdom of this world, from sin and from Satan, from the enemy, and you've never turned to Christ, I want to live for you. In you is life, in you is love, in you is hope that's where I want to live and surrender to you rather than to the kingdom of this world. I would plead with you this morning to fall upon his mercy. Fall upon his mercy. We read it a few minutes ago, but it is deeper than the ocean. And he takes your sin and he tosses it in there never to be seen again. And now he looks at you with arms open wide. Not, oh man, what in the world were you thinking Go get yourself cleaned up, and then you can be in my presence. He says, no. Jesus Christ right here at his right hand, that's where your sin went. He became sin for you. Literally became sin for you. You are now literally the righteousness of God. There's nothing else to do but to have your faith in him and him alone. He wants you to be free. Run to him. And then verse number six 
we see our identity here. Because we are in Christ, because he has freed us from our sins with his blood, he has made us into a kingdom. Again, notice the Old Testament language here. Notice the Old Testament um, images that he uses. We are a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Because of Christ's finished work right there in verse number five, now we have a new identity. The fifth thing this morning is this. The intent of revelation is not to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. In him we live and move and have our being. Everything was created by him. Our lives received the breath of God. He is the reason that we exist. He holds everything together. The scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the words of scripture, but they never heard the voice of God. As we read Revelation and go through here, may we hear the voice of God be reminded of who he is and our identity. Verse number seven this one's probably the trickiest verse in all these eight verses. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Remember I said, you gotta keep in mind the Old Testament. So if you want the most simple reading of Revelation, you've gotta have the most simple reading of the Old Testament. There are three illusions, at least three here in this one verse. And maybe you're reminded from last year, we, were in, we started the year in Daniel chapter seven. And here he says, um, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel has the same vision. So we have to understand to rightly interpret this, we must understand what Daniel was saying in chapter seven. We can't just lift this from the context of Revelation and lift it from the context of the Old Testament and lift it from the context of Daniel seven. In Daniel chapter seven, that image that he is portraying there that Daniel saw, that vision that he got, is not Jesus' second return. So verse seven, I don't think, and I'll say this every single week, I could be wrong. There's a really good chance, all right? I'll be wrong about something, that's fine. But I don't think in Daniel chapter, in uh, verse number seven here of Revelation one, that he is talking about the second return of Christ. Because Daniel seven is not talking about the second return of Christ. He's talking about when Christ ascended into heaven on the clouds. That's the vision that Daniel received. Was Christ, after he rose, he was here on the earth for 40 days. He saw a bunch of folks at the end of almost all the gospels, at the beginning of Acts. Jesus goes up into heaven. Where is he ascending to? He, he's ascending to heaven. What's the perspective of verse number seven? It could be the perspective of heaven saying he is coming on the clouds. Again, we can say, oh, this, say, it's clearly the second coming. Maybe. Maybe he's also referencing the second coming, but he's at least referencing when Christ ascended up into heaven. The second thing we see here, I think the reason this is um, clear that he's talking about the finished work of Christ and he's looking back at that same time period is because uh, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, so 10 days after he ascended, we have what we call Pentecost. Everybody say Pentecost. And at the heart of that, or the beginning of that word, that prefix, penta, means uh, five. So we have uh, like a pentatonic scale. It's five notes. Or maybe you've heard of the group pentatonics. Guess how many people were in the group pentatonics? There you go. So Pentecost was 50 days after Christ's resurrection. So at Pentecost, we have that described at the end of Acts chapter 1 going into Acts chapter 2. And at Pentecost, here's what we see is those who pierced him, 
Again, grabbing imagery from Joel chapter 2 from the Old Testament. And we have there, even those who pierced him were saying, man, I didn't recognize who this man was. So here he's not talking about those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth, even those who pierced him are going to see him. He's saying at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, they recognized that they had the opportunity to be freed, that Jesus Christ had freed them from his sins. So there's not this giant gap between verse 5 and verse 7. He's saying, here's the finished work of Jesus. And as a result, right after that, he ascended into heaven. Right after that, we have those who, even those who pierced him, who committed what we would say is the worst sin. They still repented. And then we get to the end of that verse. Notice we'll keep going. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. That word wail, there are two different, uh, two different translations for that word. We see this word wail or to mourn. There are two different ways that you can translate that. One is wailing from fear. That's actually not the way this word is interpreted here. So here they're not wailing from fear, but they're wailing from lamentation. They're wailing because they are so sorry for their sin. They're wailing in repentance to who Christ is and the fact that he has freed them from sin. He says, okay, what about every single tribe of the earth? I would say it's the same way about John 3, 16. For God so loved what? The world. He loves every single person. Here he's saying Jesus Christ came to save anybody and everybody, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Every single person on the earth has access to the presence of God who has freed us from sin. And now we have the chance to wail, to cry out, which comes from Zechariah chapter 12, by the way. That's the imagery there. So we've got, uh, we've got the, the beginning of that. We have, uh, we have Daniel chapter 7 talking about the uh, ascension, this redemption is complete for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And then we have Acts 2 talking about how they were crying out, how every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and they will respond in repentance. And here we have Zechariah 12 saying those who wailed in mourning, saying, we are so sorry, out of lament. There's repentance here. And John is saying, because Christ has finished his work, he ascended, he calls those to repentance, Jews and Gentiles, and the nations are going to respond to him. So verse seven here is talking about the finished work of Christ that has already been completed. And that's why he says, even so, amen. It's all connected right there. He says, even so, it's done. Amen. Then we get to verse number eight. I love this verse. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And real quick, if you go back and look at the original text, in the original text, it actually says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, who is that saying that right there? You're right, we don't know. Because it's God saying it. It's the Lord God. Do we know if it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? We don't know. The point of having that earlier and having it again here, I think, is to say the Trinity, God is one. He is one. He is unified. The point is not to try to figure out who said it, but to recognize that it's true. That he is, and he was, and he is to come. The alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the... Last letter. So he's saying he's the first and the last. But the thing I like about the, the Greek there is that he says, you're the, I'm the beginning and the end. And that word beginning there in the Greek is the word archi. Everybody say archi. It's, the, it's where we get the word 
archetype, which literally means it's the first in a sequence. It's the first in a sequence. So here's the ideal, and there are those who follow. There's something that's going to follow. So he says, I'm, I'm the alpha, I'm the archie, I am the first in the sequence. I'm the archetype of everything else that comes in the sequence. So Jesus Christ here is the archetype of what? Jesus is the archetype of creation, of humanity. He's the archetype of all of human history. He is the archetype of our salvation. Here's the sixth thing. Everything has its beginning in him and takes its shape from him. Colossians chapter one. We live, we move, we have our being in and of and from him. That's how we exist. He is the archetype of all creation. I'm the beginning, I'm the alpha. But he says, I'm the omega, I'm the end. And that word end there in the Greek is telos. Everybody say telos. The, the word telos means the inherent destiny of a thing. The inherent destiny of a thing, what it's going to become. So the telos of an acorn is an oak tree. The telos of a caterpillar is a butterfly. He says, so all of creation begins in me and is formed by me. Here's the last thing. Jesus is the archetype and the destiny of creation. I am the beginning and the end. It's all for me, by me. All of creation, all of salvation, all of human history, which means this, friend, Jesus Christ is my archetype and my destiny. Jesus Christ, by faith, is your archetype and your destiny. The book of Revelation over and over tells us to look forward to the day when Christ is going to return. And sometimes we, we hear that, we're like, yeah, but I've got some things that I want to do beforehand. Can I tell you that this right here, beginning and the end, the archetype and the destiny, this is why believers long for him to return because at his return, then it will be realized the reason that you were created. Your potential will be fully understood. You'll be able to be in the presence of Christ without sin, the power of sin defeated, the presence of sin gone, the penalty of sin forever paid for on the cross. So we can look forward to Christ's return because then we'll experience life in the way that we were meant to experience it, in a way that we have never experienced it here on the earth yet. He is our archetype. He is our destiny, our beginning and our end. This is the reason that he came, so that you can know what true life is, so that you could experience it. And that's why the very end of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming. And we as his people say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would remind us that your return is beautiful, that it is imminent. I pray that we would be ready and that we'd be looking forward to it because our faith is in you. We look forward to what life will be like with you fully realized. And I pray in the meantime that you would make us battle ready. Use these words that we've heard. Use the things that even I've said, right or wrong, somewhere in the middle. I pray you would bless us. It's in Christ's name, amen.